0: Listeners, welcome back to the Business of Wellness. I'm your host, Jacqueline London. And today I have a hopefully rather thrilling episode to share with you. This is going to be a solo episode today. And I feel like we haven't done one of those in a while. So I'm very eager to get started. But let me give you the background and context here. So I was recently contacted by a consulting agency to share some thoughts and insights about GLP-1s, so semaglutide, Ozempic, Wacovi, Manjaro, how these medications and this new class of medications as being used for weight loss, how these may affect the consumer packaged goods, specifically food and beverage industry. So I hopped on the phone with a number of investors from around the world, I believe. I don't want to sort of overstate the significance of this, but I also don't want to understate it. Okay. Um, Got on the phone with them on uh, earlier this week. Actually, by the time this comes out, yeah, it'll be earlier this week. So it was a fascinating experience. But In the process of doing this, I did a ton of prep work and a whole bunch of research in order to kind of come up with my answers to this and be able to share really informed opinions on all of the questions that were shared with me in advance. So what I thought I would do today is share some of what I shared on this phone call with you all. Um, A lot of what I learned and what I learned both from, from kind of just sitting down and putting pen to paper on this is that a lot of the things that come from research that I heard from individuals, from patients, from clients, from people that I've worked with, from pulling my Instagram audience, which, which actually found really extremely helpful and useful in this. And we'll get into all of that in a sec. Um, But really what I found is that a lot of the things that, that kind of came up as a part of my learnings in this process were things that I really do already know from other areas, from other kind of key areas of work. I'm going to, that sounds probably vague at first, but I'm going to show you what I mean as we go and as I continue speaking. So I think that will provide a lot of clarity to the health practitioners that are listening. In other words, I think there's a lot of things that health practitioners you already have kind of in your toolkit when speaking to patients about GLP-1s and when considering how you might approach working with brands who are also wondering about some of these questions that have come up about GLP-1s. So lots to discuss. Last to get to you. I'm going to kind of approach this Q and a style, except it's just me here. So, um, I'll be asking myself the questions and then answering them for you guys. Um, and I've included in here, like in my podcast edition of this, some of the questions that I got from folks who are following me on Instagram. So what a perfect transition on that note. If you're not already following me on Instagram, as well as all other social media platforms, please go ahead and do that now at Jacqueline London RD and feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review of this episode. I'd love to hear what you think specifically of solo episodes like this, since I don't do them very often. Should we do more? Should we do fewer? What do you think? I would love to know. All right. So without further ado, let's get into it. How are DLP ones affecting CPG food and beverage? All right, guys. So let's get into it. So GLP-1s and CPG food and beverage industry. How might this pharmaceutical darling, this whole pharmaceutical industry boom, affect consumer food and beverage products? And what do you need to know if you're working in CPG or if you're just curious about consumer markets in general, if this affects your work in some way or in whatever ways this affects your professional life? I feel like The kind of BTS, the behind the scenes of anything to do with industry is always fascinating to me. So I can only imagine that if you're a consumer who has nothing to do with the food industry in your professional life, this would still be of interest to you, or at least I hope so. So let's just dive in. I'm going to start, they kind of divided in this consulting session, they kind of divided The questions into two main categories. One was kind of background on GLP ones in general. And it for that, I am going to direct you to the last episode that I did on GLP ones. There's one with Lauren Harris Pincus. There's another one where I discussed the Weight Watchers acquisition of sequence. And actually we get to that a little bit later on um, in this episode as well. But I will drop some of those episodes, links to those episodes in the episode notes so that you can check those out if you're curious if you want to hear more. I don't want to focus too much on those today because I think the packaged food industry and beverages, I think this is probably something that we just haven't talked about enough and is an area of real interest and passion for me. And I know for a number of you listening right now, this is also your area of focus. So I want to kind of get to those sooner rather than later. All right. So let's start with some of the background questions um, in general. Okay. Okay. So the first one was, in your experience, how do GLP-1 medications influence a person's satiety and palatability? So the first thing that I want to say on that is that what I did was, (laughs) as I feel like a millennial Content creator slash consultant is is one to do. Um, I turned to Instagram. I went to Instagram and posted something in my story asking for responses. First of all, I have to say that I was genuinely shocked at the engagement that Instagram delivered for me just by asking this question in a story. I got about 3000 views on that story, on that one story, which is quite a lot for me. Um just because typically views on stories have been low ever since reels became a thing. Um, and ever since TikTok became a thing. So that was quite a bit for me. And that's probably one of the highest stories that I, I've i experienced um, perhaps this year, just in general. I mean, just to be candid about that. And I got a ton of responses, both from practitioners and from from patients, from people who are on one of these medications now, Munjaro, Lagovi, Ozempic, Semaglutide, Tirzepatide. some of the kind of other variations, some of the more generic medications, all of them. I got responses from everyone. Um, and here is... So the main kind of conclusion slash takeaway that I got out of this, the first is that the primary symptoms, the most universal symptom from people on these medications, whose medications have already kind of kicked in, they've passed that two week window where it kind of takes time to, to start taking effect. The number one symptom I got was early satiety and basically all of the medical nutrition therapy, the kind of classic signs and symptoms that come with early satiety and GERD, Heartburn, indigestion, nausea, vomiting, and less frequently diarrhea—all of those were symptoms that people described to me in in their responses. The other kind of main takeaway, the 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 hallmark statement that I got from speaking with people is: food is less interesting to me now. Food in general, period. End of story. So, this kind of decrease in appetite is basically what these medications are meant to do. So, okay good, good to know they're working for that. Um, and in general, I would say it's not surprising that something that's working on GLP one agonist as a GLP one agonist is creating these, these senses of early satiety. It makes complete sense. Right. Um, the thing that I think was most surprising is that I got a lot of people that were like, I had terrible nausea in the beginning, or I was, you know, vomiting all the time. I had tons of heartburn. Um, and indigestion in the beginning versus some people who were like, I've had zero symptoms, zero side effects. And I want to get to that in a sec, because I kind of, I think that from some of the data mining that I've done and from some of the exploration I've done on this topic, it makes sense who and, and why some of these things are happening less from an evidence standpoint, but more from, from what I'm observing clinically. Um, anyway, decrease in total volume of food earlier satiety. And often when these are prescribed incorrectly, that's when a lot of these symptoms become you know too much to bear. So a lot of people will be started on doses that are just too high for them. Um, I, I believe it's Ozempic comes with some of the more specific, you've got to start at this level. It's like 0.25 and you only go as high as two milligrams. Wegovy, you go as high as four milligrams. Munjaro is both GIP and GLP-1, um, which is a different type of hormone. So there's two in there. So the dosing sounds a little bit different. But all of this being said, very interesting. If you're not started on the right dose, it can be very hard to kind of correct after that. And perhaps it's some of these patients that might benefit from taking some time off from those GLP-1s before restarting. Okay. so. From the research, there's some early evidence that semaglutide can alter sweet tasting foods, but I haven't really found this to be the case in practice. In other words, like people who responded to me, people who I've worked with, they may consume less sweet tasting foods, but that's really a product more so that seems to be because their overall appetite has decreased and not because palatability for sweet things has particularly decreased. That's one thing I didn't really hear very much of. Um, And it's hard to say especially since my patients and experience with these populations reflects people who are still consuming products that they've previously enjoyed specifically with non-nutritive sweeteners. So like a big topic that came up in this discussion and that, you know, I feel like probably people have a lot of questions about now is like soda and sugar, sugar, sweetened beverages. And I would say that that has not really been such an area that's come up for me. I don't know if there are other practitioners listening that want to weigh in on that. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but I, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, beverages are sort of the, the simplest shift to make for many people is to go from consuming regular beverages to consuming diet beverages, or perhaps you've always been consuming diet beverages. And therefore, this shift in kind of the palatability of sweet tasting products doesn't seem to be tremendously affected. There's other research, some early randomized controlled trial data that suggests that taste perception is dulled in many people with overweight obesity and therefore GLP-1s enhance taste perception, especially for those who feel like it's been dulled. Um, And those for those people, you know, I've heard a very similar sentiment be reflected back to me, which is like you gain the ability to enjoy food more like the taste of certain foods that tastes better to you, but the amount that you're actually able to consume is much less. I don't know to me personally, who has not been on a GLP one, that that sounds quite desirable. <laughs> I mean, imagine tasting all the best things in the world, but then being like, yeah, no, I could only have a couple bites of that. Right. I think that probably sounds desirable to many. Um, and I, I have honestly seen both. Like in my work, I've seen both. I've seen people who find food to be totally tasteless and uninteresting to them in general since starting a GLP-1 and then people who find certain foods to be much more palatable. Two foods that have come up consistently, we're going to get into this a little bit more in just a sec, is coffee and alcohol. And as a bonus, one that kind of came up that makes total sense, but I just did not hear before this kind of Instagram poll, this unofficial Instagram poll that I ran um, prior to this consulting call is tomato products makes total sense, right? Especially if you consider that a lot of the signs and symptoms that are associated with the beginning phases, starting to take a GLP one are those GERD like symptoms, those um, early satiety and delayed gastric emptying. So things that are staying in your stomach for longer produce more acidity and when you're already consuming acidic foods, this really tracks, right with why these foods would really bother people. The other one that came up a couple times that I thought was interesting was eggs. Um a lot of people find eggs to be a little bit less very they're, they're less able to tolerate eggs they kind of repeat on them a little bit more. I wonder if that has to do with the eggs or if it has to do with how those eggs are being prepared and if they're being prepared with tomato products or with some other high acidity products. So something to think about I'm just, That's kind of coming up for me as I'm saying this out loud. Um, The other thing I noticed more anecdotally and more from feedback among my social media audience, again, less from my work in in, uh, practice and more from the responses that I got from social media is this perceived change in people's self-perceived change in people's willingness to try and tolerate veggies and fruit and a greater palatability for these foods especially because a lot of it is like a self-reported increase in willingness to include more produce at meals and snacks. I thought that was really interesting. Obviously I'm going to cling on to a data point like that because I'm a dietitian and I just can't help it. <laughs> so when people are like, can I suddenly like veggies and fruit? I'm like, hell yes, please keep going. Like, tell me more, tell me everything. Um, but I did hear that from a number of people who responded to the survey. So I think that's a really interesting one, um, and I, it's definitely something that I feel like I've heard anecdotally from people in articles, um, just kind of culturally, as well as people responding to me directly, is that this kind of more relaxed approach to to having a greater palatability for veggies and fruit is is kind of a powerful shift for a lot of people who are like, I've never liked, never really, you know, like I had to push myself to eat vegetables, but now I feel like I, I'm more, much more willing to try vegetables. I feel like that's a huge step regardless. So any kind of produce feedback I'm going to take, especially if it's positive. What is the average time horizon that it takes for GLP-1s to take effect and actually alter their daily eating habits? This was another question that came up, but I feel like for those who are kind of starting at ground zero with their knowledge on GLP-1s I'll just kind of reiterate that it's usually within about 2 weeks of beginning treatment. Although I would say this can also be kind of all over the map. Some people are experiencing appetite changes a little bit sooner or a little bit later. And interestingly, something that a lot of people don't know but I feel like is worth kind of sharing here. Um with GLP-1s the schedule Uh, that you're adhering to as the patient really matters. So I'll hear patients speak about like a much lower appetite. Let's say you give yourself your injection on a Wednesday. Your appetite and your GI symptoms are a lot stronger. Your appetite is much lower and your GI symptoms are a lot stronger Thursday, Friday, Saturday than if if you inject on a Wednesday versus let's say Monday, Tuesday, right? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, that's when you're kind of, you're noticing greater appetite and perhaps lower GI side effects. Really interesting. I just feel like a lot of people don't know that. Um, And that's probably mundane for those on GLP ones, but it's something that I think people who have not heard much about these medications and what they actually feel like should know Um, is just that it's kind of cyclical with when you distribute the medication, which when you're choosing to inject yourself and because it's a weekly duration, that's like an important, factor to to consider is the day that you are choosing to inject your medication. Okay. Taking into consideration dietary changes and nutritional needs while on GLP ones, what type of packaged foods and beverage products could see a reduction in demand based on current GLP usage? All right. This is really the money shot here. (laughs) This is like the main thesis (laughs) of so much of what I was talking about. Let's start with the number one that comes up the most and does not seem to taper off so long as people are on GLP ones. And that is alcohol. There's lots of, there's some existing research already on this topic, but it appears to be the most significant in people, especially those people who perhaps have struggled with more, addictive tendencies. And I hesitate to say that because I don't, I don't mean just addictive tendencies with alcohol. I also mean people who are just consuming a high volume of alcohol want to cut back are not necessarily finding themselves quote unquote addicted, but, but feel as though they are over consuming alcohol and have noticed this is a pattern, but are, are kind of struggling to cut back for whatever reason, whether it's lifestyle related or whatever. Um, I found that, that This seems to be a huge piece of feedback and a major finding, which is that there is something very self-limiting about being on a GLP-1 and consuming alcohol. You really cannot consume much. Probably about, you know, in the beginning, it's probably none. And then you kind of get to a point where you can probably have a glass, maybe two, depending on who you are of wine, spirits, beer, something like that. Okay. Um, The other thing that I got a lot of feedback on was coffee and other of those upper GI kind of irritants. So things like tomato sauce, chocolate, orange juice, higher acidity foods that for practitioners listening that we typically talk about for GERD, MNT, for the medical nutrition therapy for um, gastroesophageal reflux. Long-term, what are some of the things that I think would be affected? Particularly, I think given the, the kind of overall early satiety symptom, high sugar, high saturated fat convenience foods. So like pre-packaged baked goods and fried foods, I think those are probably the ones that could be hit the hardest because we know that the higher fat kind of um, more energy dense, nutrient poor snack foods tend to be the ones that that are the least tolerated when you have real symptoms of GERD, when you have real symptoms of satiety, higher fat foods stay in your stomach for longer. So it's why so many people experience um, nausea and vomiting when they consume those foods, especially on a GLP-1. It's also why like, you know... I've certainly been known when speaking about the holidays or, or times of year when lots of fatty foods are like present on the table, huge part of the everyday eating patterns of so many people, I find myself talking about not laying down right away after you have lots of alcohol and lots of fried food, right? Because so many of these things are staying in your stomach for a little bit longer. That fat is, is really what slows down the rate of digestion and absorption and specifically the rate at which food goes from your stomach into your intestine for, for the rest of the digestion absorption process. So in other words, and I'll just put this in context of something I'm sure many of you have seen. And if not, I'm going to link this one in the episode notes as well, but I don't, I just don't think that Forbes article, you guys saw this Forbes article citing Krispy Kreme as being like, it was like, Krispy Kreme is down because of GLP ones. Like the, the donut donut sales are down because of GLP ones. I don't, I don't know that that's entirely wrong, but I don't think GLP 1s are the cause for that. I don't think enough people are taking these drugs yet, but it is a great example. Like the humor in this is that to me, it's a great example of the type of food that could be affected. But it's also a poor example, right, because it's ignoring other factors that make donuts less desirable as a consumer, specifically as a as a millennial consumer. And I'm thinking about Gen Z even more than myself right now as I say that, right, like your competitors in the dessert aisle are ones that actually allow for real customization and flexibility, which is what any and all Corporations should know about Gen Z and millennial customers at this point. Customization and personalization must be features, not bugs. So I, I don't know. Donuts aren't that customizable. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why your sales are down. You know what I mean? It's like, it's very hard to kind of parse what is perhaps GLP one related. Although I think we, I think this one's pretty clear, right? Like, I think this one is, it's an interesting example because donuts are the type of food that I'm thinking about when I think like high refined sugar, high saturated fat content that could really upset the GI tract of someone on a GLP one. But do I think that that's to blame for why Krispy Kreme sales are suffering this year? Not so much. I really don't. And I don't think they they necessarily will ever be that big. And I'll get to that um, a little bit more in a sec. Okay. Snack foods. This is a little sneakier one that I had to add in because you guys, when I say this, you guys will know what I'm talking about. Snack foods and diet food products made with sugar, alcohols, synthetic fiber, coconut oils, and other products made with higher by weight volume quantities of ingredients used to replace other types of fat and sugar. So basically anything that falls into that diet category, quest bars, Atkins products. Um, you know what I'm talking about? I I can't think of another good example, but you guys know what I mean when I say those, like the diet food category. Um, here's why I think that there's been such tremendous momentum around the use of sugar, alcohols, synthetic fibers. Oh my God. You know what that reminds me of is personal pet peeve, which is Olipop (laughs) and Poppy, um, those beverages, right. That are made with sugar. I'm sorry. They're not made with sugar alcohols. God, they'll come after me. If I say that publicly, they're not made with sugar alcohols. They're made with resistant starch. So they're made with other types of fiber, synthetic fiber that can be produced in liquid form and added to this beverage formulation to create these higher fiber sodas. Um, I just think that it's hard to imagine those being super well tolerated, although I think that those probably have a better chance of being slightly more, slightly better tolerated versus things that are made with like the, the keto products, like keto cups, like things that are really high in saturated fat. I just don't see a place for how those are going to square with a population that's also on GLP ones. And if you think about it, like typically these are foods that have been marketed to people who are dieting quote unquote, who are trying to lose weight, who are really consciously trying to make those choices. So if they're already kind of push their products, these products that are higher in synthetic fibers and lots of different types of oils, whether they're plant-based or animal-based, these like keto, low-carb, high, high-fat high products that are designed to be tasty, um, you know, like cookies and cream bullshit like that, <laughs> cookies and cream keto cups, like, <laughs> Quest bars, like all of that stuff that's like kind of high in saturated fat per serving, but is designed to taste like sweeter versions of like real deal things, like real deal flavors, um, like ice cream flavors is, is really what I'm thinking of specifically. I think this could be affected. And I think that's really interesting because they're probably the only category that I truly believe could actually see a, um, a decline in revenue because of GLP one usage, because you have to think about the type of consumer who would typically be purchasing some of these products. And then now their you know, sort of ability to actually tolerate your products once starting a GLP one that can really change. So I think if you are listening now and you work for one of these companies, or you have any influence at one of those sort of, you know, like the, the quest bar Atkins products, the South beach products, the things that are, marketing themselves as lower carb or keto, I think this is really something to watch out for. This is going to be a population that likely can no longer tolerate your products very well. So there's that. Okay. Now, something else I want to add in here that kind of came up with, with my research on this topic and my research into how the food industry might be affected, something that really hit home for me is that medication tolerance seems to decline when people who start GLP ones have yet to start putting healthier habits into place before starting the medication. So the sooner you begin kind of health promoting Mediterranean inspired eating patterns, and, and the more you can solidify these patterns and establish them as part of your personal routine and lifestyle, the better off you are once you start the medication. Now, I'm saying that, I just want to be clear that I'm saying that completely anecdotally by looking at research, but it's not, it's not clear within the research. So I just want to clarify, like, this is clinical opinion. It's not fact. It's not evidence-based fact, Um, or at least to my knowledge, it's not evidence-based fact. It might be. But I say that because I have heard so many physicians, including ones I've worked with since GLP-1s kind of blew up last year, who are saying like, I put my patients on the GLP ones and then I refer them to you. Mm, Okay. Listen, I'm here to take the business. But, uh, and of course, like you don't get into nutrition for any other reason other than to really help people. So, like, I'm here to also help people. However, it's very hard to start helping people who feel very ill. And I've anecdotally noticed that a lot of the people who feel the sickest are people who have not started to change their food and and eating habits prior to starting the medication. I think that's really interesting because like I, I got this amazing anecdote from someone who responded on Instagram, who was basically like, I, you know, I've had solid tolerance of the medication since I started, but just so you know, like something that happened with my friend, with my mom, uh, who both started on the same, on the same medication, they found that like, they like she was like one of my my close friend had to get off of the medication because she was so nauseous all the time. But she also ate lots of oily foods. These are her words. OK, lots of oily foods. Um, Really interesting. She was like, my mom tolerates the medication, but she's eating the simplest, most basic versions of food that she already used to like. So she was saying like, instead of having, you know, tons of breaded and deep fried chicken, she was like going for the chicken nuggets because she would have like a few bites of those and could tolerate that a little bit better. But again, it speaks to this really larger issue of, you know, moving away from some of these higher fat, deep fried, you know, higher fat and refined carbohydrate containing foods that, um, that tend to be real GI irritants for people. And moving toward more Mediterranean style of eating, a more Mediterranean inspired eating pattern um, as being a part of the process of helping people actually adhere to the medication rather than thinking of nutrition and diet as an afterthought. Now a lot of practitioners, dietitians who are listening right now are going to go, yeah, of course, <laughs> which I get, which I totally get, right? Like it's like, yeah of course, like when you think about that, after the fact, you're like, yeah, of course, like put, to put the lifestyle piece in place, And you're going to do better on just about everything. And I think that makes a ton of sense. But I will tell you that in practice, I have yet to see many physicians heeding that kind of approach. It's a lot of people who are like, let's get the patient's appetite down so that then we can make that nutrition knowledge stick. And that's not really how it works. And it it really proves like, I think that right there is probably the biggest case for weight bias and, and problematic thinking among the medical community. So something to think about right there. Okay. Last thing I want to say on this topic as it relates to dietary changes, I think it's worth reiterating something that I've said so many times on this podcast and elsewhere, which is that most people do not. And I mean this about people who are on GLP GLP ones and not on GLP ones. Right. Most people don't have a problem with foods that they know that obviously contain added sugar or saturated fat, like candy and donuts, the problems come into play with the sneakier sources of added sugar and saturated fat from a variety of different sources, right? Because especially if you're a consumer who is on a GLP-1, you're going to know because your body is going to tell you that you can't tolerate something. You're going to be nauseous. You you may even experience vomiting, but my vomiting is like my number one fear, you guys. <laughs> I know that that sounds probably insane, but like being nauseous and vomiting are, are like, like if I had to have a number one fear in the world, like that this is it. Okay. Like give me death before you give me any of, that. I mean, God forbid, but I, I, I say that because like, I find it to be so debilitating. I know other people who are like, they can power through. I, I just, I personally cannot. So it's very hard to imagine, you know, feeling nauseous all the time and, and chronically. So. And not being able to kind of like do anything about it or feel like you can do anything about it and just kind of having to, I don't know, I don't want to say wait it out because that's not necessarily true of all people on GLP-1. Some people will experience chronic nausea. So it's very hard for me to imagine because I know how absolutely torturous that must feel. Um, But I will say, I will say this, um, it is really interesting to consider how nutrition knowledge in this case would really benefit so many people who are either- considering starting a GLP one or at the beginning of their journey, because if you know, and if you knew that there are sneaky sources of saturated fat or sneaky sources of added sugar, kind of, they usually go hand in hand in some of these more packaged processed foods, which is why I'm saying them like this. Um, then you really find yourself in this position. (laughs) If you know that, that you're consuming sources of, of, foods, high in saturated fat that are sneakier sources that you may not have otherwise known to look for, right? That you may not have thought much of when you grabbed XYZ keto bar product, whatever off of the shelves, you might've just seen that kind of keto word and associated that with something that may be better for you. I think that's really important because some of this baseline nutrition knowledge could really help people is from or or stop people from kind of getting into that place where they can't tolerate anything or feel like they're really not tolerating the medication before they actually get started. So it can improve medication tolerance, but also just improved lifestyle and improved feelings of actual satiety and really feeling like these medications are doing what they're meant to do, which is kind of give you your life, right? Like give, I was going to say, give you your life back, but for many people, it's give you your life because you've never actually experienced those feelings of real satiety and really enjoying the foods that you actually eat. What's a realistic viewpoint on how GLP-1s may alter a person's grocery purchasing habits, right? I think not so much. I think this grossly depends on a person's lifestyle and has much less to do with the medication itself. Um, And I I get why this question exists and I get why people might be thinking about it that way, but I don't actually think that it's how it plays out. So in other words, like a person could just as well buy the exact same things that they were, you know, buying before starting a GLP one um, because they have four kids and those four kids play sports and they're all uh, in, let's say, middle, middle school and high school, right? And they eat a lot. (laughs) And therefore, the only really meaningful change that impacts a family's grocery budget on a weekly basis is when those kids ultimately leave the house, go to college, right? So an individual single-person household might be slightly impacted more on 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 an individual basis, right? But that's assuming that their habits will concurrently change. And that someone's mild decrease in quantity of how much they consume will translate to a a decrease in quantity of what they buy. And then it's assuming that that will translate to a grocery store's bottom line. So I really think it's just way too early to say how meaningful this will be, but I don't actually think that it's gonna be truly that meaningful at all. Like something that came up a a lot was, you know, what do I estimate as the number of people that will be on GLP-1s in the next decade, all of that? And I think it's a lot less than the way that so many investors, that the banks even I'm seeing make projections about these things. I think it's a lot less than that because you have to consider that, you know, a lot of people are not getting the right counseling when they start a GLP-1 and therefore it's very hard for them to get the the right experience, for them to actually have an experience that allows them to truly tolerate foods. I think the major thing missing here is nutrition education and lifestyle related factors that make medication tolerance possible. So, in in general, I think this has been a little bit over overblown because I think that so many people, you know, and I don't want to I don't want to go too far with my theory on the idea that you'll tolerate the medication better if you receive nutrition education because I'm sure that that's not wholly accurate, right? Like there there's also going to be other factors. There are going to be people for whom they've always had, you know, very difficult time tolerating any medication that targets GI anything, whether it's hormones, whether it's an antibiotic that is also affecting your gut microbiome, right? There's a lot of people out there that are simply not going to tolerate these medications and for whom they're not a candidate. And there's a lot of people who are being over, over prescribed or, or physicians who are all too happy to say, Oh, you're, you have obesity. Like here's a script, right? Without actually considering other people's lifestyle factors. Other things in their life that really play a role into how successful they'll be on this medication and whether or not this medication is the right intervention for them, period. So, really think that's important. I I really think like this has become a little bit of like this like investment darling and like everyone's looking at GLP1s and big pharma and like all that. I think we're forgetting the fact that like. We have so many problems with our healthcare system. The incentive structure for physicians is completely wrong. And at the moment, you know, people just don't, practitioners just don't have enough time to spend with their patients to really learn about their lifestyles, about their needs, and about why they may be, they may experience overweight and obesity in the first place. In many cases, I do believe that this, in fact, is a disease. But for a lot of people, perhaps you are reaching overweight status, let's say, on a BMI chart or obese status on a BMI. My chart. And we we're not going to go into, you know, the problematic nature of BMI. We're not going to go into that today, but just, just go with me for a second. Perhaps you have gained weight for reasons that have nothing to do with hormonal shifts or to do with your genetic makeup or your cardiometabolic risk factors, but you have gained weight because you're postpartum or you have gained weight because of an actual mental health crisis that you're experiencing. Both of these fall into categories of people who may show up as overweight or obese on a chart, but that actually says nothing about where they are in their life and other factors that may be playing a role in their the number that is showing up on the scale. So I think that's like really beyond powerful and really important for people to remember and to consider is that this is why these medications are are being, you know, touted as like the blockbuster product of everyone's year and next year and 10 years from now. And we have to slow our roll a little bit. Like we need to get the actual practitioner space, like medical practitioners. We need to rein that in. We need to do more training and we need to do, we need to have greater sensitivity around what patients may be actually experiencing other than simply being overweight or being obese. Okay. End of rant. Let's go on. Let's move on here. All right. So we talked about this. Let's see. We talked about this a little bit. Another question I have here, do patients taking GLP-1 medications need to avoid higher sugar beverages? What beverage options are patients encouraged to consume while taking these medications? Now to this, I say everyone needs to avoid high sugar beverages. Okay. It's not just patients with obesity and it's not just, uh, people who, you know, (laughs) (laughs) It's not people who are starting GLP-1s. But back to my primary concern about the prescription and excitement around GLP-1s is that no one's encouraging much of anything when starting these medications, which is why it's so mission critical to have a component of dietitian mediated nutrition counseling really at the outset. Your taste preferences may change if you're the patient. You may be inspired to look into sources of added sugar in the American diet of which sugar-sweetened beverages topped charts, right? But this knowledge... It's not part of any formalized intervention process for starting a GLP-1, and it's not an automatic side effect. But since energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods and beverages are likely to be the least affected food group when starting a GLP-1 among people with low health literacy and nutrition knowledge, this example demonstrates why GLP-1s will simply not be the quote-unquote fix for diabetes and obesity that so many people really want them to be. So kind of just goes into the point that I was making before. Um, These are foods that don't necessarily make you full or provide any satiety related or nutrition related benefit, but do provide a ton of calories from added sugar. So if you're actually looking to help people really formulate and solidify these healthier habits for life, this should be kind of the number one thing that you're going for when you, when a patient starts on GLP ones is to make sure that they have an understanding that unsweetened beverages are the choice, right? They may not be affected by GLP ones, but. They should be something that is considered by everyone, everyone who eats, that is. All right. This one was a challenging one for me. Had to give this one a little extra thought, which is what food categories might see an uptick in demand from higher use of GLP 1 drugs. Now, again, I come back to my overarching thesis, which is do I really think that industry will be significantly, substantially affected by the use of GLP 1s? No. But if I were to take a guess, about what might be, just based on the signs, the symptoms, the things that I've heard from different uh, patients, from clients, from people responding to my Instagram post, what would they be? And there are a few that kind of stand out to me. And they're ones that if you are a listener of this podcast or if you followed me on social media for a while, these will not surprise you that I'm saying any of them. But basically, here's my kind of non-exhaustive list. Higher protein and fiber combos of real foods. So the example that popped into my head when I was giving this talk is Sargento, balance breaks. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. Obviously Sargento, not a sponsor of this podcast, although Hey guys, (laughs) how are you? What are you doing in 2024? Anyway? Um, I I think these are a perfect example, right? Like real cheese, small amounts of real cheese. You've got some nuts. You've got some fruit in there. Nice combo of satiety, promoting nutrients, protein, and fiber that help people feel fuller longer, but it's not going to be too high in fat. and maybe for some people first starting the LP ones, it may be sort of if you're at the more beginning stages of that journey. Um, but I think it's a a kind of solid example of something that provides real food, not synthetic products, not synthetic versions of naturally occurring products, just real food in a convenience package. So it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just reinventing the packaging wheel. Pre-packaged veggie and fruit convenience solutions. I think these are truly, to quote, Taylor Swift, these will never go out of style. These will never go out of style. As far as I'm concerned, CeCe's veggies, solely fruit jerky. These are perfect examples of ways that people have leveraged convenience packaging solutions to create more accessible veggies and fruit for people who live busy, crazy, hectic lives and don't have time to like sit around chopping cauliflower, zucchini noodles at the end of the day, right? Single-serve convenience at large, I think, could be really affected, especially because I can just see CPG industry <laughs> at large having a more renewed sense of why we need more single-serve products, right? And I'm always a proponent of these because I think they serve a purpose twofold. They both help people actually understand what a serving size might actually look like for them. You know, for a lot of people who are simply out of touch with their own hunger and satiety cues, I think this can be, like, these products can be real learning for, for some people. I'm not talking about the really unsatisfying version of like those hundred calorie packs from the early nineties. I'm talking about like the thing, like a string cheese for crying out loud, right? Like this is, this shows you what a real serving of cheese can look like and actually be satisfying when you combine it with A source of fiber, right? Like with an apple. Um, That's a satisfying snack that can actually help you stay satisfied and feel more energized without experiencing some blood sugar swings or um, some of the moodiness that comes with hanger, right? Kind of throughout the day. Some examples that I gave Clio Bar's um uh, nut products like Wonderful, Blue Diamond, Emerald, those single-serve nut packs, Justin's, Tolio string cheese, again, things that come in single-serve that you can combine, that you can add to produce, or that you can add a source of protein. These are really simple ways to also just help people along their journey of solidifying and forming those healthier habits that really stick unsweetened single serve beverages that are not made with synthetic, synthetic sugar, alcohols, or resistant starch, like not poppy or Olipop. I'm sorry. I know. I know I'm really biased, but honestly, I cannot. It's very hard. If you were on a GLP one and you found yourself enjoying those, tell me, I want to know because I'm dead serious. (laughs) I really find me on Instagram on any social media platform. Jacqueline London RD, find me and tell me because I cannot imagine that it's easy to tolerate anything with high amounts of sugar alcohols when you're on a GLP one. Now, I say that with the caveat that for those of you who are listening and you're thinking, like, uh, is that really gonna affect people? Because it's more of the intestine than it is the stomach. And yes, like I hear all of that, but if you're already experiencing discomfort and gas is a major side effect of GLP1s. Like this can't help the, the products with high amounts of sugar, alcohols or resistant starch. Those cannot help. Let's, let's just call a spade a spade here. Like you need to be getting your fiber from things that have real nutrients in them, like chickpeas for crying out loud versus poppy and only pop beverages. I, I just like have a diet soda for fuck's sake. You know, like just like live your life. Have some non-nutritive sweetener. Have a nice little aspartame. You're good. You're safe. We've talked about it before a thousand times already. You know where I'm going with this. End of this rant at the moment. Okay, I'll probably return to it in a sec. All right. Are there foods and food categories that naturally stimulate GLP-1 hormone secretion? Yes. Foods higher in fiber? <laughs> Veggies, fruit, 100% whole grains, nuts, and legumes. I mean, real foods higher in fiber. I don't know about those synthetic fibers that I was just talking about. See, this rant is not over. I don't know about those, but I can tell you that we know fiber, sort of like the OG, Ozempic. Exercise, also the OG Ozempic. Strength training and resistance and some cardio training. Um, some some cardio and resistance training also can stimulate GI hormones that regulate hunger and satiety. GLP-1s are among those. All right. Let's see. What else do I have to tell you about? Okay. What packaged foods would be beneficial for consumers to eat while taking GLP ones that aren't currently on the market or widely available? All right. So we talked about this. I gave you some examples. I will say that, you know, again, just to reiterate this, I think the convenience versions of fresh produce solutions that combine real and wholesome sources of protein with a source of fiber, that satiety promoting combination. Again, you know, The degree to which you can tolerate it may be dependent on the total amount that you can tolerate while you're on the medication. But starting to form that habit of combining protein and fiber containing foods can help you when you start to taper off the medication. And ultimately, if you want to make sure that you're not going to experience weight regain after coming off the medication, this is a huge part of building those health promoting habits that actually stick and that actually work for you. So I think that's a really important point just to kind of like double underline, which is that you want to start building those habits before you're on the medication, but also while you're on the medication and then therefore have them in place by the time you start tapering down and ultimately going off of the medication and learning how to eat in a way that's truly satisfying for you. If CPG as an industry can get their shit together and help people actually do that. I think this could be the true gold mine. This could be, because it's going to be helpful not just for people who are on GLP ones, but for everyone. So combining solu- solutions that combine real wholesome food sources of protein with fiber, and it doesn't you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It can be literally you're finding an innovative way to combine fresh produce with a source of protein. That's it. All right, solutions also that are you know kind of at the beginning of their boom that I've loved since the beginning. Is some in some others in the single serve category, like um like canned wine, perfect example, right? Because right away, for someone who's on a GLP one that can't drink much alcohol, you know you're having maybe half a can or you're having one can, right? Whereas when you open a bottle of wine, you're saying like you can't enjoy that bottle of wine whatsoever because you know that you're only gonna have a tiny little bit, uh, you know, like a few drops of that wine, right? So you're likely to not open it in the first place and therefore you're likely not to buy it. But if you want to have some of these things that you might otherwise enjoy, but just can't have in greater amounts, then having those convenience solutions, I think is really important. So canned wine, conscious indulgences. I've been in love with this company, Midday Squares. Again, not a sponsor, but wish they were things that allow people the flexibility to continue eating the foods that they love without sacrifice, but have these kind of more mindful portion size factored into the packaging and therefore the purchasing and consumption experience of the consumer. So in your opinion, should growth expectations be reduced across the packaged food and fast food industries? And I say not yet, if at all, but definitely not yet. I think it's too early. You know, the more widespread use of GLP-1s we need more research. We need we need more longer term research on G, on the use of GLP-1s off label to really tell us how to behave how to how to project. Um but I don't think that this is going to overall affect total volumes of foods. I think that this could be a really great experience for the CPG industry at large to have something of a reckoning when it comes to food and beverage products because I do think that some of the the single serve products that are on the market now are a little bit too focused on quote unquote wellness and not really as focused on what do people actually need to help them feel full, satisfied, and also teach them the habits of healthier eating patterns. I spoke about this on Instagram recently about this product that drives me crazy just because they got so much funding. They got like $14 million, I think, in in VC funding. It's called Belly Welly, and they're these probiotic cookies. And I'm like, honestly, people you don't really think a cookie is going to change the makeup of your gastrointestinal tract, do you? You don't, right? I know you don't. Come on. If you listen to this podcast, you don't. But the truth is like <laughs> the ingredients in the cookies were totally fine. They're they're just normal cookie ingredients. Like they're fine. They may be slightly, I don't actually don't, I don't think that they are lower than chicken versus regular cookies, but like the main thing about cookies is that we just eat lots of them and they've got lots of added sugar and saturated fat. So like, you know, but like let a cookie be a cookie. It's not that that I'm so concerned with as far as your overall health and well being goals are, are concerned. It's the fact that, you know, so often with other things that you don't know that you're consuming those sources of saturated fat and added sugar and like that, I don't blame you for. I I just think like, we all know that a cookie technically isn't necessarily the quote unquote health food that it, that you know, we might want it to be. But my point in saying this is that a cookie with probiotics in them it is not going to make or break your gastrointestinal health. And therefore, marketing it as such is, I think, where we get into really dangerous territory, right? Because then it's trying to trick, it, there, there's essentially the sneaky kind of tricky element of things it's like this is going to help your GI tract, when really, it's just as just like having a regular cookie, you know, you don't know, like if you really need a probiotic, then you should be looking into the type of strain that might benefit you best for your specific needs, concerns and the symptoms that you're experiencing. And even then, we don't we don't really have enough research on probiotics at large, but I'm going off topic here. My main point is to say that. Let's get away from this kind of like promising the world to people about symptom management through a fucking cookie or through another type of wellnessy product, right? And let's get focused on what people actually need. And if GLP-1 usage actually helps us do that, oh my God, do you hear this siren outside? If GLP-1, if GLP-1 as a category, if GLP-1s as a medication category is going to help the CPG food and beverage industries have that reckoning, then I'm here for it. All right. Less saturated fat, less refined carbohydrates will be better tolerated in this population, but they're also better for society. I mean, I'm just going to say it like in food products, this would be better for our population. Fewer fried foods, more produce. Love it. Okay. I'd also be remiss not to mention that, you know, There, there are issues in our food supply that are not affected by GLP-1s, but are affecting human health, like the amount of sodium in the American diet, folks. This is not going away because of GLP-1s. It doesn't matter for people using GLP-1s, but it does matter for cardiometabolic health. In fact, it plays a huge role in blood pressure. So really, it all comes back to what we discussed at the beginning about obesity not being and the be-all, end-all indicator of health. We still have to keep in mind some significant components of nutrients, Overconsumed in real life and find solutions to help us mitigate these issues versus focusing entirely on weight management strategies, because this is where we will get into trouble. And then there is always a workaround when you're not actually putting into place some of the nutrition education that really benefits people because they feel truly empowered to take control of their health versus you must go on a diet, right? Which is essentially what I think too many physicians are doing when they prescribe a GLP one. All right. So that is the end of my soapbox for today. I feel like we covered a lot. I am desperate to hear from you guys. I really want to know what you think about this episode, about the structure, the format of this episode. Did you like it? What do you think about the category of GLP ones? How do you feel like they will affect the food industry? If at all, especially as we go into 2024 and beyond, I would love to hear from you. All right. Until next time, enjoy every bite. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.